If you're looking to be a bullfighter, broaden your skill set, you know, parallel transferable skills, always good if you're thinking of being a matador. Yeah. We're not discouraging matador training, but also maybe learn, I don't know, welding, a little carpentry, something that, that'll always be useful. Little home economics can never go yeah. wrong. Bullfighting is not immune to economic downturn, okay? Welcome, everyone, to Unbelievable, the podcast where I, Luis, tell my good friend Kurt two unbelievable stories from history, one real, one fake. And the burden falls to me to decipher truth and lies. That's right. <laughs> I am on His Majesty's Secret Service, Luis Mejia, joined here by the spy who shagged me, Kurt Danner. <laughs> and I am taking over the show today. I am taking the reins. I'm going to tell Kurt two unbelievable stories from history. However, we've got a bit of a theme running through today. Ooh. I decided to, to uh, you know, once you're doing research and looking at the different facts of history, you kind of tend to base yourself off of certain trends and guide your story, whether it's real, whether it's made up towards a, a specific theme. And today's theme seems we have landed upon spy stories, Kurt. Ooh, this is very exciting. Tales of international espionage, intelligence gathering, and... Just a little bit of fascism, just to just. For you always fun, gotta I have guess. that in there. You gotta have something. There's gotta every every good spy story needs whatever global enemy of the time period is going on. You know, sometimes Nazis, sometimes Russians, sometimes terrorists. But you gotta have some global crisis going on. That's true, and, and unfortunately, it seems that for both of, of these global crises, <laughs> which we're gonna be talking about, the fascists are very much present. Oh. So. Before we move on to that, before we hear what uh, the international spies have for us, Kurt, it is tradition that we always give you a fun fact to tell us so that we can calibrate our uh, fib, or our lie detectors and see if we can see this story, if it's true or far false. So, Kurt, do you have a fun fact for me? I do. And, and I regret that it's not spy themed because this is news to me as well. I didn't know we had a theme going into this. And I'm not even going to try to contort this bad boy into some spy related thing because it's just not going to happen. But what I will say is, Luis, true or false, if Pride and Prejudice were completely historically accurate, some of the women would likely have nipple piercings. Oh, I, you know, just I just I want to believe that's real. So I'm going to say real. <laughs> you would be correct. <laughs> So in the Victorian era, it was briefly a fad for women to have nipple piercings uh, normally made out of gold. However, I will give you this one caveat that uh, technically this was a fad in the late 18th century and Pride and Prejudice takes place in the beginning of the 18th century. I was uh. see if you had said false and then I had not told you that, I would have felt like I cheated. So that bit of info is oh. in there too. But either way, Victorian women had some nipple piercings, which... It really changes my whole world perspective. That's incredible. That's lovely. Thank you, Kurt. Really That's nice. an, a lovely, lovely image to have from back in the day. Yeah. Now, that being said, I am ready for some international intrigue, some thriller, mystery. Yes, 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 yes. The good thing about spy stories is that there's already a bunch of smoke and mirrors built in. And I know you're bringing also your own smoke and mirrors. So I'm ready. You for already know. Critical mass smoke and mirrors. Let's do it. <laughs> We're overbearing amount of smoke <laughs> and mirrors. All right, Kurt. So we're going to go ahead and start our stories. We're, we're going to go ahead and start off by going to a little land. You may have heard of it. Spain. You familiar? I was so Spain? worried you were going to say Mexico. No, Kurt. We've turned a new leaf. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going Spain. To... Oh, ooh la la. Spain. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, anyway, we're going to Spain in 1913. Good year. Very good year, uh, particularly in the province of Catalonia, or if you want to consider it as an independent state of Catalonia, you can call it that. You know uh, what? I appreciate that, Luis, because I actually do consider it an independent state. That's good for you, Kurt. <laughs> now, <we're> or <laughs> unless I don't, unless the people listening to this don't consider it an independent state, I consider it whatever you listening to this right now consider it. <laughs> that, that was a, a smart decision. I just realized I might have inserted myself into some real Spanish drama there that I do not want to have my hand in. <laughs> we don't want to alienate either end of the political spectrum of our Spanish listeners. Correct. Of all zero of them. But you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're we're starting our tale off in Tarragona, Catalonia, Spain, in the year of 1913. Good because names this already. is the year. A lot of very Spanish names, mm-hmm. and I'm going to to try and. and see if I can add my my own Spanish-speaking flair. It is this year that the man, uh, a boy named Joaquin Correa Merchan was born, and he was just a a lad in 1913 who was born to this relatively poor family. Not a whole lot is known of this man's family other than they were like poor merchants. And from a very, very early age, a very young age, his family, his father started taking him to the national pastime of Spain. Kurt, can you guess what it is? I'm sure you do know what it is. Bullfighting. Bullfighting indeed, I read my Hemingway. I knew you were familiar with Hemingway, (laughs) Kurt. I knew you you were going to like this. But now, at a very young age, he starts going to bullfights in, again, early 1900s bullfighting is the pastime like this is before even soccer was a huge thing or football if you want to call it bullfighting is the cream of the crop of of sports Mm -hmm. bullfighters are seen as celebrities or as your local sports figures so he gets interested in bullfighting and his family uh joaquin's family sees an opportunity in the boys love of this game to enroll him in a school for bullfighting. Wow, they have schools for bullfighting? I would yeah, not have guessed that. Yes, the, the people that get involved in bullfighting to this day are are, are enrolled in, in some sort of academies, institutes, or, or, or schools to teach you how to be a bullfighter. Where, for example, if you want to be a matador, you have to learn all the different disciplines of bullfighting, whether it is killing a bull, uh, being on, on horseback. Like, you need to know the mm. whole shebang. Most Actual bullfighters, current bullfighters, have been studying since they were teenagers Hmm. to be a bullfighter. Do you think they have filler classes? Like, so they have enough, you know, so you can get 12 credits. There's one that's like how to cook a steak. And it's like this. They're like, this is not really related to my career path, but it's a required elective, I guess. Do they still have freshman PE? (laughs) (laughs) Their freshman PE equivalent is how to make a good sangria. Their freshman PE should be running with the bulls. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, but that really that really wouldn't be a, a too much of an extracurricular, right? Like, do you think they have theater? For at extracurriculars for bullfighting school, like I don't know, there's an improv group at bullfighting school that is terrible, but everyone goes to <laughs> all the shows because it's the only one there is. You, Luis, you want to abandon the rest of these stories and just talk about speculate about what a bullfighting school might have going on for the rest of this? I mean, I feel like people would enjoy that as well. <laughs> this, this is just the the lore rule, but we're we are not even half like not even a quarter no, into not. the story. And this look this 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 uh bullfighting school conversation. This is an after hours. This is a post recording yeah, for a, us to vamp yeah, on exactly, for another hour just exactly. for us. So let's let's continue with yeah. the story. <laughs> um, but anyway, he goes to this bullfighting school, and again, as I mentioned, since bullfighters are celebrities of the time or local sports figures, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that way. This 
this is an opportunity for this relatively poor family to rise up in social status, social rank. So they say, mm. okay, let's send him to school. Somehow he makes it to the local school in Tarragona and he starts to learn. Um, so much so that he is seen as a, as a bit of a child prodigy. Like he, go, he goes Ooh. in to the school by around age 10. Okay, so he's a young boy. Wow. He's a small child when he goes yeah. into bullfighting school. And by 11, a se- like literally a year later, he shows a terribly innate talent for bullfighting. He knows how to move. He knows how to, quote unquote, dance with the bull. He knows how to telegraph where the bull is going. He seems to know everything. He seems to be reading the bull's mind. Long story short, he is incredible. This would be the greatest Pixar movie if it wasn't for the fact that he's you know, working on killing animals. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, like that's... Which, that's no uh, disrespect to bullfighting. I'm just saying they yeah. wouldn't put it in a Pixar movie, I don't that, think. That's a big thing. And, and, you know, this actually ties into it because uh, the most impressive thing about this man is that he was very deadly when, as, uh, as a, a young student to, to fight. Wow. Because I'm going to, to really quickly give you a little bit of context of bullfighting. Mm-hmm. I know, Kurt, you know a little bit of it, but bullfighting comes from all the way to the Romans, like Colosseum fa- uh, fights between man and animal. It's a huge traditional thing, like cultural thing. In a way, I think it, it could also be tied in with religious practices saying, hey, this is God's creation that is man fighting against other God's creation that is supposed to be a huge big animal but yet man still succeeds over it. So it's, it's this whole traditional, say what you will about whether you're, you're into it or against it. Um, that's the whole cultural background of bullfighting. And one thing you do at bullfighting, the way you're quote-unquote scored for this is how well you're able to move the bull with your red cape or your different capes. And lastly, the probably the most critical part of bullfighting is that it's not really a fight. It's it's meant right. you're, it's the bull is meant to lose. But the real struggle, the real challenge is how quickly and quote unquote painless, quote unquote uh, merciful you kill the mm-hmm. the animal, right? So you're supposed to stab a sword into the bull, and the bull should be dying within five seconds or within fifteen seconds, right? right. Uh, and that's seen as as merciful and just a single blow, right? That's one thing, you know. It, it's always for me been really interesting to talk to you about bullfighting because I feel like that's something I had not considered before to think of it more as like a performance or like almost almost like a, a dance in some ways. Totally. That it's it's not so much like. You know, on its face, it's kind of blood sport, but it's not really intended to be that. It's meant to be more like uh, some sort of uh, it's a, performance. It's a performance, yeah. A lot of people equate it to ballet uh, and things of the yeah. sort just because there's a lot of, of, of grace to it. But again, I understand that people have their apprehensions and, and find it find it troubling to watch. But we're not going to get into that right now. All you need to know is how quickly you can kill the bull gets you very far. Okay? And this mm-hmm. man is so good like this child is incredible at killing bulls okay? oh wow he's like the john wick of bullfighting he has deadly aim my goodness see it, it's scary <laughs> it's scary uh so uh, a little bit too students typically start with calves or younger bulls right mm-hmm. that, that they that they practice on start killing mostly because of their size and then mm-hmm. they quote unquote graduate to actually be able to kill full-size bulls now legend tells mm-hmm. us that Joaquin, the very first bull he was meant to kill at around the age of 12, with the blink of an eye, like a person essentially sneezed, the bull had been stabbed and the bull had been dead on the ground. Wow. So he was quick on his feet and he was very deadly. Now, 
He's he's got like like some anime bullfighting stuff going on. You just see like the, yeah, the flash of his sword. Yeah, and the bulls dropped. <laughs> Basically, the, the 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 smoke fades away. The 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 dirt blows in the air. There's the dead bull. The bull just sees a flash of red cape, and then he's behind the bull. And he's like, <laughs> Nothing personal, kid. <laughs> and it's a 13 year old <laughs> child, which yeah. is the best part. Now, because of this, he keeps rising through the ranks. He eventually does get the title of matador, which is which means that you are able to f- uh, kill full sized bulls. By the way, he gains this at the age of 16. So wow. he is a, a very young matador with a lot of terrible skill that still has a lot of room to grow. Because of this, he becomes so terribly popular. He travels all mm. around Spain during the, the regular bullfighting ring. Uh, the, the, the bullfighting uh, just uh, tour, you could say it. Like He goes around to the big cities and starts performing and people are in love. And again, remember, this is the sport of the time. So... People are freaking out about this tiny child that is incredibly good. He becomes a huge celebrity. He goes to different bullfights, even goes on press trips, gets invited, gets gets the keys to certain cities too. He is he is <laughs> he is so good at what he does. Now, 1933 rolls around. Okay, 1933. Okay. This man, it's good been, year. Good year. He's 20 years old now. He is so popular now that. Local politicians, even military figures, start making fan clubs, like these sorts of associations Whoa. associations to, to say this man is awesome, this man is great. And even some nobility, including the then king Alfonso VIII, was a noted fan of this matador. Like he he was a rock star. He could go into wow. any any city outside of Tarragona and essentially stay for free people would offer up their houses people would offer up their children their daughters to marry him you know <laughs> things of the, of this ways uh and yeah no i can only imagine because he's so i mean he's so young too i feel like you know part of the fame of being a matador is also some sort of personal branding or that there's there's an appearance i mean it, it definitely is as much about the performance itself as it is about absolutely. the person performing it absolutely right so i can imagine that like him being, you know, young and probably there's some aspect of that. It like looks very cute to see him be a bullfighter that he's just like absolutely the heartthrob of his time. And there's a level of arrogance and like even sexual energy that comes with bullfighters, right? You have this, this, this skinny, well-toned man in a tight, tight outfit that is essentially this whole thing is so Spanish. It's, it's the most, just just (laughs) picture the most stereotypical Spanish thing the, uh, and that's a matador in this time period, okay? Uh, now, so I, I was telling you, he can go to any city and be famous, but mm-hmm. picture him in his hometown of Tarragona. Like, he was revered so much. <laughs> Imagine, I don't know, to give you a, a, a present-day example, Tom Brady walking around downtown Boston, yeah. you know? Like, he would be flocked by so many people. Or, you know, maybe give you another example if you're not if you're not into sports. Maybe, I don't know, uh, B- Benjamin Netanyahu in the White House. I, I don't know. I just keep picturing that, like, he's trying to, you know, just go to get some groceries. Or uh, what are you doing in Spain in, in 1930? I don't know. He's doing some regular in-town stuff. And, like, he's just going around places. And, like, everywhere he goes, people are throwing roses at him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, he, he 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 he's smothered in roses. Like he has a carpet <laughs> on the ground, just covered in, in he's roses. He's swimming out of his house through roses. Seriously, seriously, he he is a revered man. Now, 
I'm just, this is basically all context just to show you that this man is big and popular and famous. Mm -hmm. And, and if you could call it like the face of Spain, if you want to call it that way, like it really, it really shows that he's a a larger than life figure. And again, Mm -hmm. he is 20 years old, 21 years old. He's a child still like, like maybe just still a a young teenager with all this going on. Yeah. He's like an old timey Disney kid, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, that's what I keep thinking. I'm like, man, he's really lucky. He was born in the time before he could have like gotten messed up on drugs or something. Cause he he totally would have been like the kid who's too famous for his own good. And we really don't know. There are some tales that says that he drank a lot, but like that's not terribly relevant, but Again, that's just matador behavior. That's just, just that's vibing. just living in Spain in 1933 <laughs> behavior, Kurt. Let's be honest. Nothing against our Spanish listeners, which again, there are none. You don't need that disclaimer. That was a compliment from us. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Now, another quick fact about bullfighting is that every matador has a sort of sponsor or patron that really takes care of your expenses, books you for more events, gets you in contact with well-known cattle ranchers that have bull farms that you can get it. So every matador kind of has someone that they lean on for the financials. He being so popular with all members of, of the nobility, the lower classes, the military, he gets sponsored by a general of the Spanish army. Ooh. Like a military general of the Spanish army, General Juan Gerardo Ortega Faisal, takes over his sponsorship, becomes his official patron. This, of course, raises the popularity of Joaquin he gets now paraded around in military events. He goes to different... Even more roses. Even so many more roses. Now, now <laughs> it's actually just hand grenades now. They're just throwing pistols <laughs> at him. <laughs> that, you know, that really shows his reach, that he's even infiltrated the, the military circle, you know? Yeah. Like, no matter who you are, you know who this guy is. And and, and it's it's funny, too, that he, he gets to become well acquainted with not just your regular soldier, but the higher-ups in the army, right? Right. At this point, he even gets the nickname... Uh, El Teniente, which means the lieutenant, (laughs) which in Spanish, his nickname, his full nickname would be the lieutenant of bullfighting, which in Spanish is really fun, is El Teniente del Toreo. Like, that's really fun. You know, a nice alliterative rhyme. So the lieutenant now is what we're going to call Joaquin. He continues his career as a bullfighter. Three years goes by. He's a 23, 24-year-old man. Now he's with this new moniker of the lieutenant. By this point, it's 1936. And I don't know how well acquainted you are with 1930s politics in Spain, uh, Kurt, (laughs) but we are nearing the Spanish Civil War. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now... He spent his whole time as a, a little soldier boy or more like a puppet of the army, like their, their little tinker toy. He feels mm-hmm. very patriotic of the Spanish army. And he's like, yeah, I love Spain. I would die for my country and things of the sort. This all you can see it in a very much different light, considering that the army people he was meeting were the government, the military government that was being established, which is fully fascistic. So he was paraded around fascist dinners and fascist military leaders and potentially even meeting Francisco Franco. We don't know, but he really drank the Kool-Aid that is... So he's he's on the side of the establishment. Yeah, he loves... He he, I mean, he's being sponsored by the government, by the military, by uh, the military government. So in 1936, Spanish Civil War breaks out officially, if you want to call it that way. He feels very patriotic and says, I'm going to repay my sponsors 
and the people that love me in the military with with going to military service. I'm going to serve my country and fight against this resistance, this rebellion that is rising up in the streets. It is going to be such a rude awakening for him when he whips out the red cape and none of the rebels charge at it. That's going to be, I mean, you know, what is he going to do then? Uh, yeah. He's only got the sword, you know. He's really quick with a sword, <laughs> but not quite as quick as a Luger. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> he's not ter- he's not quicker than a, a 50 caliber handgun. Yeah, I worry that that he's uh, looking at this like bullfighting, graduating to fighting rebels as like if you were really good at the violin, you could graduate to the cello. Uh, I don't think that's how that I mean, once you works. once you graduate from bullfighting school, you're getting your master's degree in fighting rebels, <laughs> I guess. Oh, it's like a secondary program. I yeah, see. exactly. Yeah, okay. You just keep okay, adding cool, to your cool, education. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Now. This actually, this comes into play because he gets, he joins the ranks and he is deployed out to different parts of the war. And he actually gets sent to Catalonia. Why? Because Catalonia is where the fighting is at its most intense. Now remember, this man is from Tarragona, which is in Catalonia. This is his home, essentially. This is his home country, you Mm -hmm. could even say it. He notices that every time him and his team are deployed... And he goes out to the streets to fight these rebels. All the bullets and all the fighting stops. <laughs> like, he's, he steps out. I just imagine him, just a fresh, just a green new soldier with his uh, gun at the ready. He steps out, ready to shoot someone. No shooting. Everything stops. Turns out, people recognize him and refuse to fire at him. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know, if you're, if you're going off to war and Cristiano Ronaldo is just there hanging out, you're like, I'm not going to shoot Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't want to be that guy, you know, that shoots, that shoots Harry Styles in the face, you know. Uh, I don't right. want to be him. So no one fires at him, and meaning that every time his unit is deployed, they're pretty much fine on the contrary he is so much so well loved and so respected that some of the rebels or the people on the resistance side even approach him during these street battles during these firefights people approach him to just chat with him shake his hand and things of the sort you know what he's he's lucky i'm realizing that he's like his sport is bullfighting and not something that like people will try to backseat coach you from you know when they're <laughs> yeah. watching like had he been a had he been a quarterback, you know, there would have been someone in his hometown who's like, "Hey, yeah, remember when you choked in yeah, the Super Bowl yeah. last year? How about this, baby?" Yeah, th- th- I think there is a bit of a shield. Whenever like if you do something wrong in bullfighting, you most likely will die. You know, I think yeah, I think yeah. that's that's there, there's a, a different level of respect for bullfighters here. Now, yeah. bureaucratic, boring bureaucratic nonsense goes on. But long story short, the Spanish government, the Spanish military, notices this and decides to use him as an asset to their fight. So the fascist government Mm. devises a plan. We are going to send in the lieutenant of bullfighting into enemy territory, and we're going to use his influence to talk to other people and get the resistance Republican fighters to surrender, even, quote-unquote, talking sense to those fighting in the war. Oh, man. This is like... The worst person you know just made a good point. Yeah, it's like, oh, shoot. Because, you know, you know me, Luis. I love a good scheme, okay? We're all schemed you over do. here. And th- this is such a good scheme. Like, this man is just a device for, like, peaceful surrender yeah. or at least lack of fighting. Yeah. Let's just put him everywhere. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great half-baked idea. And honestly, like, it, you, you almost hate hearing this. You almost hate hearing this because it makes sense, right? It's ridiculous. That's what I'm saying. I hate that I... 
love it's it. ridiculous. It's it's completely ridiculous. Even more so, he is outfitted with a uniform that combines some of the elements of the shiny bullfighter outfit with your typical army fatigues and your army uniform. So he looks like a walking mascot of fascism and bullfighting. It's ridiculous. He's just straight up Spain's version of Captain America. Essentially, this is this is going through Captain America, going to all these different places, but actually trying to convince the other side to step down. And he has the influence yeah. to do so. He becomes a symbol for this fascist government. He's put in leaflets and different other things that are sent out to these places. He goes to different bars and cantinas trying to convince the Republican resistance to drop their arms and accept this fascist government. And like we mentioned... It's ridiculous. It's absolutely just imagine a guy wearing bright gold army uniforms. Like that's so stupid. However, people eat it up. People do like this. It does work. Now here's the craziest part. Who eats this up the most? My boy, the lieutenant himself, Joaquin. Because by talking to people and holding these meetings where which are typically at, at dining rooms or the homes of Republican fighters and cantinas and bars he becomes close to the Republican resistance. He becomes uh, enamored with the ideals of stepping up, up against this government. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Spain. You better watch he out. He loves this anti-fascist thinking. Like, Joaquin, big Antifa man, uh, he loves it. He eats <laughs> it up. After all, a lot of his family, a lot of his friends are fighting on the resistance side. And he stops by and thinks for a second. It's like, this is the people that I love. Why would I kill them? Like, it makes sense why you're rebelling against the military. Yeah, yeah. So he decides to use his influence to be a double agent, Kurt. Whoa. So he's going to actually be trying to influence the other side to drop their arms, the fascist government. <laughs> <laughs> now... There's not a whole lot of information on what he's doing because, again, he's like a 23, 24-year-old guy, doesn't really know much of what's going on, and he's like, I'm going to be a double agent dressed up like a silly matador. And it doesn't really go that well. Oh, no. I wanted it for him so bad. He was fa, and he said Antifa time. It literally only lasts about a year. And how does he get caught? It's the most <laughs> ridiculous way he gets caught. He gets caught with the wife of a of a Spanish officer who he was trying. The most ridiculous way? That's the most Spanish way. Well, I guess so. But he <laughs> was trying, allegedly, the story goes that he was trying to double bluff this wife's officer by saying, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm a double agent. What about it? You know, trying to get the other, the, the wife to not believe that. Uh, but she got suspicious, reported him to his husband, to her husband, and he got tried. And essentially the truth came wow. out that he was a double agent. He actually was sent wow. uh, or was issued to be sent to the firing squad. But he was so popular with people in the military that he's like, okay, we're going to give you a reduced sentence or we're going to just put you in jail indefinitely and so he gets sent to jail wow. uh he he gets time in jail however the civil war ends soon after he gets released and has a bit of a <laughs> okay. has a bit of a comeback tour goes back to the <laughs> only thing he knows how to do bullfighting makes sense so he's still a very popular figure yeah yeah i mean he dies but he's he was always a figure uh with like the people and even more so the bullfighter right. who was the named the lieutenant who now is fighting for the resistance right. side how exciting Right. You know, that's that's right. a people's people superhero. It's very exciting. Yeah. However, in a very fitting way, 
after after about 10 years or maybe seven years being outside of prison, he uh, goes into the bullfight, bull, uh, the bull ring and uh, dies because he was gored by a bull in 1945, uh-huh. 1945 at the age of 32. Young, The wow. lieutenant of bullfighting, Joaquin Correa Merchan, dies fighting a bull, doing the only thing he knew how to do. Just out of curiosity, do you know... Like, is there a reason why he got gored? Did he make a mistake or did it just for the reasons for the reasons that other people that other bullfighters get gored? It's just he had an accident in the ring. He maybe did a misstep. Maybe the bull attacked in a way he didn't expect. He was killed by the age of 32. This is where the story ends. However, this did have an impact. Like I mentioned, he became a bit of the people's hero, uh, a bit of a folk folk Mm -hmm. image for the people of Tarragona, Spain, to the point that in 2005, Catalonia decided to ban all bullfights completely, and uh-huh. Tarragona went along with it and said, we're going to close the bullfighting arena for good. There's not going to be any more uh, bullfighting events here. People actually rioted, <laughs> uh, maybe like a mild riot, you know, like not not burning down the city, but they said, hey, we have a national hero. We have a local folk hero who died in this ring. I don't know if he died in the ring. I actually don't know where he died, but he, he died for us doing this and now you're going to ban it and they did so <laughs> he died adjacent to the ring <laughs> he, he, he died he died this, this local town hero died doing something related to this don't close it but eventually it did close so there's no more <laughs> bullfighting in catalonia and yet the memory of joaquin the lieutenant of bullfighting still remains in the hearts and spirit of all catalonian peoples Okay, so I have two things to say. One that I was thinking is that it's really interesting to me that even though he was this prodigy of bullfighting, that it eventually caught up with him and that was what killed him because I think it's just my Missouri background, but I actually know a few people who have been attacked by bulls or gored by bulls. And maybe this is only interesting to me, but I feel like we often don't think about how dangerous the animals that we think of as domesticated yeah. can really be. So that's that's very intriguing to me that even though he was clearly really naturally talented at this, that still just, you know, one mistake, it seems like at some point caught up with him. Sure. The other thing that I was thinking is this situation where he got arrested where so he's the youngest matador sleep having an affair with the wife of a military officer and gets caught for it that's like the most spanish setup i could possibly think of and that and that alone i mean the rest of the story i was like this isn't even really hard to believe it's just a cool story but that alone just makes me like really (laughs) worried about the truthfulness of the story see if you had told it from that point that that was the main focus of the story i would be like this is so made up because this is way too perfect to be true but I just wanted to, to <laughs> pause on that that little moment in the story for a second and say like, wow, that I mean, dictionary definition of a Spanish drama right there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the the interesting thing about it is that like, while it does sound like the most Spanish thing ever, at this period of history, at this period of Spanish mm-hmm. history in particular, it's not terribly mm-hmm. weird. Like we mentioned, matadors, very popular. Matadors exude very sexual energy. Right? Like, there is, it makes sense that this was happening, especially with such close connections to the military. Uh, but I understand. It does, it does fit, does seem a little bit too, just a little. little well, I'm not, I'm not there. saying it's weird. Um, I'm actually saying the opposite is that it's like too believable. It seems too perfect to be true. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but all in all, wow. Yeah, that's, seriously. 
that's is a classic protagonist of like uh died very young but accomplished so much that it's really just hard to comprehend fitting that all into like a life that only lasts exactly uh, what did you say and 32 years 32 years and you know what it's you mentioned i want to i wanted to touch your your point about dying in the ring like bullfighting and particularly the bulls that are bred for bullfighting they are bred to be mm-hmm. aggressive mm-hmm. they are bred to be mean they are bred to be uh big and strong and ready to destroy mm-hmm. yeah yeah right? to attack anything they see so these are yeah. dangerous animals and uh i think this is one part of the when we look at both an important part of bullfighting why it's uh, so intriguing to a lot of people is that while it does seem very simple what they are doing what it, it does seem almost natural to them this this quote-unquote mm-hmm. dance that they are doing they are risking right. their lives they're put you're putting a 500 kilo animal yeah in front of you that that's a Toyota Camry <laughs> right in front of you, and maybe maybe it's a little less, but it's a big big old animal with right. horns that is ready to kill you. So a lot of matadors actually have yeah. been killed, and some of them have been gored and survive and keep going back to bullfighting. That's how passionate they are about it. Like for example, the greatest, the considered greatest greatest bullfighter of all time, uh, who was nicknamed Manolete, he died when he was just thirty years old because a bull struck his sciatic mm. artery or not the artery the the aorta but that goes mm-hmm. through your thigh right so it is death is something yeah. very real to these matadors yeah you know um, it's it's like any other sport or where it's easy to forget like just because the people make it look easy doesn't mean that it is easy and additionally uh you know if if you think like if it really was that dangerous people wouldn't do it you have to remember that just like any professional athlete they have Probably, you know, like a borderline addiction to it. And not only that, Kurt, remember, it's the only thing they know how right. to do. Right. right. This man started bullfighting school at 10 years old. What else is he going to do? That's true. Not, not a lot of translatable skills. You know, even with, the, well, like we were all. saying before, their, their four selectives of, of how to cook a steak or whatever. I don't know what you're going to do with that if the, the bullfighting thing doesn't pan out, you know? Exactly. You're, so. you're, in, you're in some manual labor jobs after that if that doesn't work so out. So maybe if you're looking to be a bullfighter, broaden your skill set, you know? Parallel transferable skills. Always good if you're thinking of being a matador. Yeah. We're not discouraging matador training but also maybe learn i don't know welding a little carpentry something that that'll always be useful little home economics can never go wrong bullfighting is not immune to economic downturn okay (laughs) 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 all right next story we're actually gonna move a couple of years later not too far later to the beginning of world war ii Okay, mm. so this story ended in 1945. It's kind of fitting that we're staying in this time frame, yeah, because we're going to be focusing on a man named Dusan Popov. Ooh. Okay, P O P O V. Dusan Popov, also known as Dusko or Dusko. Dusko Popov. Dusko Popov. Hang on a second. Dusko Popov. <laughs> Tell me now, Luis, are you capable of coming up with Dusko Popov? Because I, I need to know if that's something that you could have pulled out or not. Kurt, I have, I have thank you, thanked you before for congratulating me on names, so don't discard it. <laughs> a uh, true magician never reveals his tr- secrets, huh? Exactly, or his fake names. All right, Dusko Popov. Dusko, Dusko Popov. I didn't think this was a funny name until you're bringing it up now, Kurt. Dusko Popov. This was a man uh, born in Serbia in actually one year before, one year before Joaquin uh, in 1912. Dusko Popov. Good year. Dusko Popov was born in Serbia 
and uh, to a relatively rich family, uh, an aristocratic family. He, you know, he's been described also in this, as an exceedingly wealthy family. Oh, <laughs> really, okay. Uh, because his family was uh, was a descendant of wealth that came from banks and industrialists who founded a bunch of factories, mines, mm. and uh, different retail businesses across of Austria. Classic Hungary. old money. Classic old money. There are records that even show that his family was going all the way back to the 1700s. So again, this man is a very rich man. Mm-hmm. He relocated to Dubrovnik, uh, which is now Croatia, which was most of his time. He also had a manor in Belgrade, places in the Balkans. Rich, rich man. Okay. Mm. Now, he uh, went to a bunch of different schools because he received uh, uh, just a, the education that uh, the son of an aristocrat could get. Right. Okay. Right. So he got such an education that he became fluent in not only his native Serbian, he was also fluent in Italian, German, and French by the time he was 15 years old. Hmm. Seriously, this is this is a very well-educated man. Uh, True, yeah. Between the ages of 12 and 16, he actually went to to high school in Paris. And then later, he, he was enrolled in a preparatory school, a prep school in Surrey, England. So by the time he is 18, he has studied in Serbia. He has studied in Paris. He has studied in England. He actually... He's so close to a bingo. He's very close, very <laughs> close to a bingo. He enrolls into university back in Serbia. He doesn't find it very good so he moves to freiburg in germany to to get a doctorate in law like this man is is all over the place he can do these moves and throughout this whole he's just he's just throwing darts at a map of europe i swear and he has the money to do so which is incredible also considering this is early 1930s kurt meaning the world is in financial crisis true (laughs) true 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 and he's just going around hanging on having a great time now this is important, Kurt. Keep in mind this. Dusko was a man of, how, do you, how would you say this, of general attractiveness and physical attractiveness. Ooh. Okay? Oh. He, he got the reputation when he was in Belgrade starting university of frequenting different cafes, frequenting different nightclubs, and gained the reputation of being a bit of a ladies' man, Kurt. Ooh. He loved the ladies. He was sensual. Deuce you goes know. on he, the prowl. He conducted himself in a uh, some records in a, in a loose, Ooh. easy manner. A and loose, easy manner. Put that on Luis's tombstone. Conducted himself <laughs> in a loose, easy manner. <laughs> now that's bingo, if you ask me. So he, uh, during his times in university, particularly this university in Germany, which by the time, Germany had recently come under control of a certain Adolf Hitler, you know, that guy, disheartened artist, Adolf Hitler was now in control of Germany. <laughs> and he he meets this guy called Johnny Jepsen, who was the son of a German of a German man, so he was another German guy. And he started just becoming friends with him and things of the sort, uh, became really close. They would have arguments uh, saying that they're in favor of democracy and they think Nazism is terrible. And they're like, nah, nah, nah. Nazis, not good for Germany. Which, Hot woke. Take. 
I mean, let's talk about it. Let's talk about woke Dusko. Uh, now, he, again, another anti-fascist man. Free-hugging is, snowflake Dusko. Who hates Adolf Hitler. Really? Can't hate him. Can't hate him. Now, he, he actually got arrested by the Gestapo at some point during his university years because he was accused of being a communist. Now, Classic. <laughs> Which luckily, luckily, because of this, because of his richness and because he was friends with this other man named uh, Johnny Jepson that I mentioned, mm. uh, he actually was able to to get out of jail. He, he, he called his father. He used his Nepo baby instincts, mm. got out of, of prison and was in, in, instructed to leave Germany between 24 hours uh, to go to to Switzerland. Uh, now, this is a critical moment in history, Kurt. Okay. Because he met up, he meets up with his friend Johnny, Johnny Jepson. Johnny Jepson. And, and Johnny tells him, hey, man, I don't want to disturb you, but I'm working for the British government. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So Johnny <laughs> says, I am working for the British government as a spy, trying to gather as many German documents as I can for the British Johnny says, that's kind of cool. That's kind of <laughs> sick. I kind of want that. I really enjoy that. So he started getting Dusko involved with, with intelligence gathering mm-hmm. uh, while they were both in Switzerland, eventually meeting the heads of the MI6. So things are going great for Dusko. Dusko is in Serbia. He is working for the MI6 also being in Serbia, sending information to Serbia itself as a bit of a double agent. Well, not a double agent, but just a spy in two different agencies. Now, you think being a spy is fun already, okay? <laughs> but then war starts out, Kurt, in 1939. Oh, wow. One. So he was a spy before the war even started. Yeah, he started gathering intelligence because his friend was gathering intelligence. This guy is... But he's big old right place, right time. Because, you know, no one in the 30s knew this, yeah. but that the 30s should have been where all the shenanigans took place. Because, you know, that, that the, I guess yeah. like the late 20s and 30s, that was the time to live it up before you got to get back to business of world crises, you know? And and, yeah. and like Dusko, like I said, perfect timing. He's just doing his like study abroad. Let me see if I can cross off every country in Western Europe. And then he becomes mm-hmm. a spy at exactly the right time. Like... He's just on permanent vacation. He's he's living rich kid oh, life, yeah. you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And now here's he he was even like allowed to to travel freely across Europe because of his money, as long as he was able to gather information. Now Serbia, or this point in Serbia, like is uh, allied with the Axis powers. So now, since the war starting out, he can be drafted into the Wehrmacht. Okay, into the German army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since he had studied in Germany too, he had the possibility of being drafted. And mm-hmm. he said, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. So I'm going to join, I'm going to join the Abwehr. Now the Abwehr is the German intelligence agency. <laughs> oh, okay? okay. So he says, if I join the Abwehr, I can avoid being drafted into the military. So he becomes a spy for the Germans while being a spy for the British and also giving information to Serbia. Wow. So he is a double agent. He now becomes a double agent. So, wait, okay, hang on. That's, that's so much here. So where, where do yeah. his loyalties lie? Because he's helping, he's helping Serbia, and he yeah. was a spy for the British, but now he's a, so he's mm-hmm. a double agent for Germany, so he's, 
he's helping Germany and he's also helping Serbia and he's betraying the British. Uh, No, no, no. No. He's helping. He's helping the British. He's helping the British. He's helping the British because again, remember Antifa. Hates the, true, he, true. hates the Nazis. True. Hates not the Nazis. big on fa. So he not not big on fa. As you really should not be, right? Like, <laughs> as you really should be. Wait, hold on. The double negative is working. I'm not for. I'm not pro fa. I'm anti fa. Now. Wow. I mean, tough back to back episodes. Last episode, you're a big cannibalism. <laughs> this time, you're a big fa guy. I mean, come on, Luis. Can we stop, stop the it. podcast any more times? What are you trying to do to oh, me? No, here? no, jeez. <laughs> well. Anyway, all this to say he is working for the British government, getting them information. He's loyal to the British government. Okay, got it, and, got it. Uh, get getting information as a double agent in Germany. Okay. Serbia is just in there for fun. It's just yeah, for Serbia, flavor. Yeah, he's got the weekends he, off. He'd go to Serbia. Give him a little info, you know? He's from Serbia. He loves that country. That's his hometown. He's going to give him totally the information fair. he can. Now, he was able to... To travel around and use his money as an aristocrat. When has he not been? <laughs> exactly. But now it's sponsored by the British government. The British government would say, yeah, travel around, gather information for mm-hmm. us. And here we go. Here's here's some information that you can give to your German counterparts. Nice. To, like, to your German bosses. Right? So... He would be feeding enough MI6-approved information to the Germans to keep them happy and unaware of his actions. Mm-hmm. And he was supposedly very well paid for his services. It's a dream job. And He's just traveling around Europe, saying things in German, getting paid. Now, here's where it gets really, really fun. He, as we know, was a bit of a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what was his best way of acquiring information? Using this life as an aristocrat, going to different hotels, and sleeping with people. Oh, um, no. Dusko, you dog. And, and not only would he, like, go around... And sometimes it wasn't even pivotal to the mission, Kurt. He would go to different <laughs> hotels and, and, and gather information as he could. But then he would just say, hey... I've got a three-day stay in Switzerland. I'm going to meet as many women as I can. Oh, man. Right? Wow. Okay. I got to say, I, the, when you told me the first story, I'm like, he's young. He's a matador. He's living it up. I was like, this is just totally Luis wish casting. He wants to be the protagonist. <laughs> but, Wow. Was I wrong about that? Because somehow you found a better protagonist. He's just around vibing. Yes. yes. He he is being paid to travel across Europe, gathering information. And while he's being paid, traveling for free, he gets to stay at very expensive hotels and loves the casino. <laughs> he's like, did I need to flirt with this woman? No. Yet? No. <laughs> Here I, I am. did. <laughs> Are you going to stop me, sir, if I get you good information? Absolutely not. I'm sorry, but this woman is critical to my job. This man has impeccable vibes. Seriously. And again, he was a loose, easy-mannered man, you know, <laughs> which, which is, frankly, amazing. Now, that's, you know what's so funny is the like just the phrase loose and easy mannered. You put that on a man and it's like absolute legend. We're telling the story in a podcast. Put it on a woman. She got a lobotomy in 1950, probably. Yeah, which is a shame. Which is yeah. a shame. I don't know what I mean by this, but I'm just saying, hey, uh, <laughs> something to think about. Awareness. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> man, we're getting very so we're very, very social awareness in this episode. We we're talking really about are. this. We really we're talking we're talking about anti anti fascism. We're really going crazy, Kurt. <laughs> 
<laughs> this was supposed to be a, a spy thriller. And we're, we're getting all social awareness on this bad boy. Damn. Always leads to it. Now, I'm just going to quickly, quickly go through some of the accomplishments that Dusko was, was uh, I guess, almost responsible mm-hmm. or, or was critical in, in, in doing. One of his most important deceptions was convincing the Germans that the D-Day landings would take place in Calais rather than Normandy. Nice. Also, I love so as having we know, the most important deception. Yeah, Everyone should have, yeah, have that statistic. Yeah. Your most important deception. Everyone should have a most. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, which, as we know, Calais is the port that's closest to mm. Britain, right? So when they would be organizing D-Day, you would think that they would mm-hmm. go there, but no, rather the Allied powers convinced the Germans that they would be mm-hmm. arriving in Calais where, where, so that they wouldn't be ready is this, for their Is this arrival. in conjunction with, because I know there's some stuff, but some shenanigans by the Allied as far as like inflatable tanks or fake vehicles where they faked that the, the landing was going to be somewhere that, else. That was that. also, that he was part of that. I mean, he was part of the group that tried to convince mm, them okay. directly, you know, meeting with officers, meeting yeah, with yeah. German intelligence too. Since he was part of German intelligence, he would give them MI6-sponsored intelligence. Now, here's, here's a, 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 quite frankly, very curious one. In 1941, around... August, he was staying in Portugal, in Lisbon, staying at this at this uh, place called Estoril at the hotel named Palacio. So the Palacio Estoril. He stays there in August while he's working for uh, MI6, mm-hmm. as, as he's been. He He's staying there for a while, and he finds out, he finds out a telegram that the Germans had received from the, or from the Japanese, where they were talking about the Pearl Harbor mm. attacks. Okay? So he receives this information about the Pearl Harbor attacks in August of right. 1941. He goes to the FBI with permission from MI6. He goes to the White House. He goes to American forces and says, hey, this is not looking good. Mm-hmm. Right? This is not looking great. The Japanese are planning an attack on Pearl Harbor. The FBI's leader at this time, the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Classic. Uh, J- I'm, I'm not even going to say anything, but just if you know, you know, J. <laughs> Edgar Hoover. Classic. This J. Edgar Hoover allegedly did not report this fact mm. to his superiors, did not report this information, mm. did not pass along this information because Hoover distrusted Popov or Dusko because he was a double agent through MI6. And not only that, allegedly... In a later interview, Dusko said that Hoover was suspicious and distrustful of his playboy and philandering activities. Yeah. (laughs) He did not like that Dusov was living this life of of sex, drugs, rock and roll. And because of it, he said, I have no way of trusting that this man is... uh, actually a double agent (laughs) and giving me information about japan like absolutely did not trust it he said this man is a complete immoral playboy this is what allegedly j edgar hoover (laughs) said um which uh, as we all know also at this point he was so distrustful that j edgar hoover found out that dusko had brought a woman from new york state to florida because he had arrived in the u.s and of course he's gonna he's gonna get his his share of U.S. women, if he's already traveling do, all dude? across the world, he, okay. he meets a woman from New York and brings her to to Florida. And when J. Edgar Hoover found this out, he said, "You better leave this country, or else I'm going to have you arrested. <laughs> I'm going to have you arrested under the Man Act, 
also known as the White Slave Traffic oh, Act of the United of the United Federal Law, which originally it made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of quote any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or any sort other form of immoral wow. purpose. So the J. Edgar Hoover was ready to threaten this man with human trafficking because he was not happy that he was uh, whoring around. Um, this is just the what, what is the deal with you today and creating these situations that are like too perfect to be true? Because Dusko is like, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's really classic, like rich kid who is living the greatest life, not because of any specific talent he has, but just because he can like just vibe out 24 seven. You know, he's just traveling around Europe. Yeah. He's a spy for this country. Now he's working for this country, you know, <laughs> whatever. He's getting paid. He's hanging out. And he's like this unstoppable force of good times, right? The whole way through. And, and, yeah, and that's really what is. I was thinking is just like, because, you know, this story we're like approaching World War II and like some really bad times globally. I just kept thinking like, what can possibly stop this man's vibing? You know, he's just 24-7 party. And yeah. how could I have predicted? His, he's an unstoppable force who met the unmovable object of J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, <laughs> perfect. That's so perfect. He's like exactly also, the wrong person to come to J. Edgar Hoover and say, I know about this imminent crisis. Because yeah. J. Edgar Hoover is going to be like, yeah. Yeah. I don't trust his morals. Throw him out. <laughs> Get him on some, <laughs> some law from the books from 1792. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the best part about this, Kurt. You're saying that he's doing this all in in leading up to the Second World War. This is during the yeah, Second World yeah. War he's doing this. He sees this war going on and says, I have time to sleep with yeah. every woman. That, that's it. just, I mean, just to consider <laughs> that. The Second World War, like possibly the most major event in recent history, could not stop this man's vibes. Yeah. Could not stop this man's vibes. Yeah. And yet... J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover you finds a way to, to sneak I mean, in here. He comes and in every time. You really do. <laughs> it's 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 comedy that looking back on it is the yeah. funniest thing you yeah. could ever hear. J. Edgar Hoover was upset that he it's, wasn't it's, it's getting it. It's too any. perfect because it's like the worst person in the world that he could have said this information to. It's exactly <laughs> the wrong person. Yes. Yes. And well, going kind of back to it. So this meeting with J. Edgar Hoover, where he passed the documents to warn the United States intelligence about the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor was in August of 1941. J. Edgar Hoover took those documents and he said, hmm, this man is immoral. Threw them <laughs> in the trash. Later that year, in December 1941, the Japanese would attack mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor, almost unexpected by the government. So in a way, this wow. man was, was, was critical. He could have changed a path of history, and yet his former actions betrayed him, if you will. Um, yeah. So, so it's kind of tragic. Like we love making fun of J. J Edgar Hoover, and we will continue to do so. But, <laughs> but it just goes to show that it just just try and stop us. Just try and stop us. We <laughs> J Edgar Hoover, you are not safe in this podcast. We were wishy washy on Catalonia. We're not budging on <laughs> we J. Edgar. Absolutely Hoover. <laughs> not budging on J Edgar Hoover. J Edgar Hoover, this goes out to you. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's what happened with with. Um, Dusko, Dusko Popov. And one last thing, one last thing I want to bring up about this, this frankly incredible man is that I mentioned that he had stayed at the Hotel Palacio when he was staying in Portugal, which at the time was a, a neutral power, right? So he was staying in Lisbon, Portugal, stayed at the Palacio Hotel. And as we mentioned, he was 
a big fan of the casino. Mm. Now, in August of 1941, there was another certain man sitting at the casino table of the Baccarat table at this point in 1941. Some other person working for the British Royal Navy at this time. Do you want to guess the name of this man, Kurt? I'm going to just going to tell you. It was a certain Ian Fleming, Sir Ian Fleming, who... Uh, for those of you who don't know, wrote the books of James Bond, all the different mm-hmm. books of James Bond. So he, Ian Fleming, shared a casino table with Dusko Popoff, where Ian Fleming noticed was in view of this eccentric millionaire, extravagant millionaire, who was throwing away money at the casino table and who was looking at women and making women fall in love with him by almost seemingly just looking at them. And wow. later he, he had found out that he was a spy and this is believed that Dusko Popoff was an inspiration for Ian Fleming's James Bond. Wow, that's pretty wild. So that's, that's believed to be the, the primary inspiration or just something that contributed? One of the inspirations. Uh, and one of the inspirations, more specifically, of Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah, of course. Wow, that's wild. I mean, this is it's so weird. I can't get over the J. Edgar Hoover thing. But <laughs> all in all, both of these stories are like so classic spy stories. Mm-hmm. Both of these stories, you like, I was so engaged in listening and thinking about are they real or are they fake? And both of them, like about three-fourths of the way through just caught me completely off guard with the first one, the most Spanish situation you've ever heard, and the second one with just J. Edgar Hoover surprise cameo. So, <laughs> so I think- I, I'm going to be honest. Both these stories I was like actively listening to and thinking about things, and then I got completely derailed <laughs> by this. <laughs> got, got punched in the face, got sidetracked wildly by the turns of these stories. Yeah. Well, I think in yeah. that case, Kurt, uh, I think – I think it's safe to say we can pass to the next stage of this podcast, Mm -hmm. which is the one we all know and love, and that is... Deliberation. Yes, so please remind me what the two stories were, Luis. Okay, the two stories you just heard, the one you have just finished listening to is Dusko Popoff, the man, the myth, the legend, who loosely and easily carried himself across Europe during the Second World War, acting as a double agent for Germany and British MI6, who was almost critical in warning the U.S. of the Japanese Pearl Harbor attacks if only he hadn't been so horny. J. Edgar Hoover could have prevented all this. The first story, which almost seems like forever ago, Kurt, was the story of a lowly, young dreamer, the lieutenant, Mm. the lieutenant Mm. of bullfighting himself, Joaquin Correa. Now, these two, this man was a bullfighter from the start who decided to use his influences with the fascist Spanish military government to be a sort of Captain America, a Capitan España, if you will, (laughs) where tragically dying at the age of 32 within the bullfight. What do you think, Kurt? Mm. So, okay, both of these stories, I I was feeling really good, but then when we got to the second story, I, I completely lost it because here's what happened, is that the first story... So much so, you know, we're always talking about how you are projecting yourself onto the protagonist <laughs> of whatever story. The first story, I was like, this is totally Luis made up this wish casting story about bullfighting. Luis loves bullfighting. But you want to be both protagonists in both of these stories, <laughs> which I mean, I don't know if you said that, but I know you do. 
that's what's really throwing me off is that I for you know I thought originally that it was going to be an easy choice because there would be the one that was clearly you were more in love with it and I would assume that was because you had made it up but now I'm having to weigh which whether you'd rather be the lieutenant or Dusko <laughs> and it's just a crippling decision in my mind what I will say is that both of the stories super believable I don't know if you intended to do this but both of the protagonists being very closely aligned with you or being people who you would want to be really, really has thrown me off if you can't tell already. But what I will say is as much as we talk about history with each other, I don't know if we've ever discussed how much I dislike J. Edgar Hoover and find him interesting as a historical character. This is like a shared interest, I guess, in J. Edgar Hoover. We just discovered in this episode, but I don't think it's come up before. I, 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 personally had no idea yeah and i don't know if you would have known to put j edgar hoover in here which makes me think that it was just a happy accident so i'm gonna say that the j edgar hoover my boy dusko on the western europe and a little bit of serbia too world tour double agent triple agent you know we're just talking to every country at this point that one's true that one's true because of j edgar hoover yeah you know what i'll say it all because of j edgar hoover that's just to look the spanish situation is too perfect the j edgar hoover cameo is too perfect but i think the j edgar hoover cameo is less likely to be made up that's what interesting I'm so if, if we're, we're looking at the at the twists of both stories and seeing which yeah, twist I'm, is the I'm most to- i'm totally comparing the the affair with the officer's wife and the j edgar hoover cameo yeah that's which in a way is adjacent point. to one another because there were affairs in either in both Just stories. Just the band-aid off already, Louis. Stop. <laughs> Stop teasing me. All right, Kurt. Well, I, I am going to tell you that the J. Edgar Hoover story, uh, well, actually, it became a J. Edgar Hoover story, but it was about my boy, Dusko Popoff. <laughs> yeah, once upon a time. Once upon a time. Dusko Popoff was a real man, Kurt. You are correct. Yes, yes, yes. Dusko Popoff. I never miss a real life J. Edgar Hoover cameo. You are always on the lookout for the J. Edgar Hoover cameo. <laughs> you've, you've been God, waiting. You never know when he's showing up, dude. God, you've been waiting for more than 20 episodes to drop your J. Edgar Hoover knowledge, Kurt. I'm glad I could be I could be there for you. But yes, Dusko Popoff, a Serbian man, son of very wealthy aristocrats, traveled all around the world to essentially keep doing what he does best, womanizing drinking, gambling, <laughs> and somehow he was paid for all of it, which frankly <laughs> is the dream, if I'm going to be honest. It's incredible. Mm. I love the first story so much though, Luis, because let me ask you, was there any bullfighting information that was taken from somewhere else or taken from information about bullfighters in Mexico or anything? Because a lot of the information, a lot of the information in there seemed really believable in, in a way that it makes me think it was taken from something else. So when I was looking at the story of this man, I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to somehow bring bullfighting and the Spanish Civil War together. The only real things in that story, Kurt, is there are schools for bullfighting. That is a real thing. And people, nice. people have to see that. People do become bullfighters from a very young, tender age. And the values and whatever I told you about bullfighting ring, that's the only thing that is wow. real. Wow. So other than that, we're all the, the lieutenant, Joaquin, everything made up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the closing of the bull of the bullfighting rings across Catalonia, that's also true in 2005. There's, since then, there haven't been any bull, bull fights in Catalonia. 
Uh, but other than that, everything is uh, made up from uh, my little noggin. Wow, that was really good because it, he was such a real protagonist. Like, uh, maybe it was because he was so easy to compare to his modern Me? counterpart, which would be like a like a <laughs> no, like a like Justin Bieber, you know, like doing a bunch of ridiculous stuff to go. I mean, like I said, he was like uh, an old timey Disney kid where yeah. you know he was like a child star, and then he's like growing into being an adult or whatever. But the point is that was. Yeah, I mean, it was such a real protagonist. I felt like I knew him, uh, and the story—the story was was really well nested in this time period in Spain, where it's like what I like to think of as like meanwhile in Spain, <laughs> like all the crazy stuff that was happening in Spain while there was slightly crazier stuff happening worldwide. So nobody knows about it except for the people who live in Spain. You know what? You know what the worst part about this whole story, Kurt, is that I was believing the story as I was writing it. Right, like I, I, I would be <laughs> coming up, that. I would be coming up with different details, and I'm like, I, w- I would think of different situations of things that Joaquin would do, and I would think, oh no, of course he did this, like duh, like obviously mm-hmm. writing with mm-hmm. with the sort of arrogance of a historian saying, um, actually this is what Joaquin did, <laughs> you know, and I started to believe it, everything, like to the point where I got sad when I wrote that he died at 32. <laughs> Like. I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I've experienced this before too. I, at this point, I've just given up because I know a lot of people have commented that listening to this, there's like now that we have a whole parallel history that's in their minds, and like they know is not true, but they have to remember is not true because we told it as true. Mm-hmm. And that happens for me as well. And I'll, I'll be honest, the stories that I make up, I feel like I love so much. I'm just going to pretend they're true and hope that they never come up in conversation. At the end of the day, <laughs> Kurt, is it really misinformation? What is history? if not just a way of us fictionalizing the past, right? Like we can't know 100% what happened 100 years ago mm-hmm. unless we were there. Everything we can sure. know about, about history is approximation. We can get very close to what history was like, but we're never going to get the whole picture. So maybe it's true. at one point in history, there was a womanizing matador who was 25 years old and decided to, I don't know, like that's great. You know, and yeah. I'm and I'm happy to live in that fantasy. You know what's really interesting to me is the way that that history and society works, that it changes so much over time. Is like I've been joking a lot about how uh, the lieutenant Joaquin is very much like a Disney star and stuff like that. But there's also an interesting thing to that like I'm relating it to that because it's a way that's easy for me to understand him as a person. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not really that long ago, 1913. And I, I know we're talking about a fictitious thing, but still, this is like a a person that very easily could be real. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how things can change so rapidly that it's like you're saying very difficult to understand the past uh, as it truly was sometimes. Sometimes we're only able to understand it through the lens of our own uh, worldview and experiences. Yeah. yeah. Um, but all that being said, let's talk about the true story because that, that is wild. And, you know, I'm never going to get over this J. Edgar Hoover cameo. <laughs> I do want to say one interesting thing uh, that I was thinking a lot about this, like that they got the warning of Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then, you know, it could have been it could have been maybe prepared for prevented, but was never acted on. It made me think of uh, that. There was a I don't know if a lot of people know this. I think it's been overshadowed. But I think like 1991, there was a terrorist attack on the Twin Towers, like a, some sort of car bombing. And there was this guy mm. who got really obsessed with uh if there was another terrorist attack, what would it look like? And he um, predicted that it would probably be like some sort of uh, thing where they were flying an object or a plane or something into the buildings. And so he started pushing people to take all these safety precautions to prepare for this in case it happened. And he actually was super prepared for it on the day of and was like going back into the towers and getting people out. 
and um, very heroically died in the process of doing this. But oh, wow. it was it's another case in history where like just happened to be these circumstances that somebody predicted exactly the disaster that was going to happen. But because of the the situation they're in, or who knows what, just you know the way things go, they weren't listened to as much as yeah. they should have been or could have been. And I you think know, I think something really interesting about the way that humans work. And that. I think it's also interesting. Not only do we get a, a sense of, like you mentioned, like the human spirit of, of no, no, we we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, uh, like like yeah. we we want to be fully out of the know of what's happening tomorrow as much as we pretend that we do want to know what's happening. But at the same time, this was a result of. American conservatism, American prudish values from the time, right? Because J. J. Edgar yeah. Hoover was an older man. He was probably born in early 1900s, you know? Yeah, like J. Edgar, okay, I just looked it up. J. Edgar Hoover was born in 1895, okay? So he was wow. born in 1895. He was an older man who still holds on to these old... Uh, closed off values that the u.s should be this glorious nation where no sort of debauchery is ever going on <laughs> and it's because of his own moral code that that, did, yeah, that nothing happened yeah. right like this wasn't even yeah. passed on to anyone else it, it's it was given to the hands of j edgar hoover and it stopped there now yeah i want to to really quickly point out that this information of meeting j edgar hoover and passing along information was written by Dusko Popov himself in his own autobiography or in a biography that he wrote mm. a book. Uh, it's called uh, Spy Counter Spy, which I think is a, just a cute little, <laughs> little, little, very straight to the point. But he did write mm-hmm. that uh, he met with with Herbert, uh, J. Edgar, sorry, J. Edgar Hoover, and nothing really happened. So this may be just a sensationalized story written by Dusko Popov, but does not surprise me. I don't think it would surprise you either that J. Edgar Hoover would absolutely like, this is true, you know? Yeah. Let me, let me say this. If Dusko Popov entirely made this story up and never even met J. Edgar Hoover, I don't care. I'm still not cutting. The <laughs> I'm still attributing it to him. Also, put, your, put yourself in J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, boots. You know, if the, Pearl Harbor attacks happen and you come out to the public and say, actually, I knew about this like years ago, months ago. <laughs> That's not a great look on you. Seriously. Imagine him receiving that news. He was probably like, are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. <laughs> that man. Yeah. Like, of course, you're going to shut that up as soon as you can. Right. Like you're yeah, not yeah, going yeah. to you're not going to to send that information out into the world because you don't want to be hated more than you already are. Yeah. That's a that's a very classic like U.S. history that will be released and made publicly known thirty years after it happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Dusko Popov ended up going just through life. Like I said, he he published this novel, this autobiography called Spy Counter Spy, which uh, was one of one of the critics wrote it a racy account of his adventures that read like a James Bond novel. Nice. So so do you have any idea like? You know, I don't know if you can quantify what percentage he was the inspiration for James Bond. Does it seem like he was a primary inspiration or just it's possible he was an inspiration or one thing among many? Or you what? know, when looking throughout this whole thing, Kurt, um, I did think of, of inspirations. One of the inspirations for James Bond could be Ian Fleming himself. Ian Fleming was mm. a spy for the British government. Mm-hmm. And, and it's often thought that, that James Bond is a self-insert character. Uh, for right. for Ian Fleming, but like for example, Kurt, 
there's an entire Wikipedia page called Inspirations for James Bond, right? So, <laughs> like, there is, there, like, there are at least, like, 10 people or more that could be potential inspirations for James mm. Bond of different okay. different uh, facets of it. So, I think it's pretty clear, um, and I think you could draw a really quick parallel with the Casino Royale and the man he met, the, this Dusko Popov. But, I mean, yeah. he's, he's just one of more people he actually Dusko died in 1981 age of 69 so he didn't really live a very long life uh years of chain smoking and heavy hey, drinking will joaquin. do that to you better than joaquin who died at 32 the very real person who died at 32 or didn't you know he now he died at 45 i mean i can't say that but you could say it. you can just change it anytime you want he's still alive he lived to 102. He's immortal. <laughs> he has Stop. not died. What are you going to do? You can't stop us. This <laughs> you, podcast is our playground. Exactly. We can, we can do whatever we want here. <laughs> and misinformation is our rule of law. <laughs> so what does that bring our score to now, Luis? All right, Kurt. So that brings up our tally of uh, actually being able to guess the stories to two. To two, Curtis, we are tied. Ooh. We are tied with uh, guessing. We're getting good at this, I think, after... After more than twenty episodes, I think we're we're bound to. We, you were good. already good at this, as <laughs> evident by the score. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Well, in that case, Kurt, we are two to two. We are tied. So I'm I'm ready and expecting to see what you mm-hmm. will bring to the sto- to the table next. But for now, for today, that is it. Those are the two stories. Thank you so much for listening. Were you listening along to the story? How did you do? Did you get the story right, or do you? Also, like me, fall into the sweet hands of Joaquin, the lieutenant of bullfighting, and wish he was real. Let us know. You can find us on our social media accounts. On Twitter, we are at UnbelievablePC. On Instagram, we are at UnbelievablePod. If you like this episode, let us know. Rate it if you'd like. And if you didn't if you didn't like it, well, sorry, you listened to it. Thank you so much for... <laughs> what are you going to do now? We what, got you. You're what are you going to do? It's too late. Okay. We took your time. Can't stop us. Yeah. <laughs> what about it? Now, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We are unbelievable with Kurt and Luis, and we'll be back with you very soon. So, bye. Bye, everyone. If you have important information, don't tell it to J. Edgar Hoover. Also, research J. Edgar Hoover. Have a good laugh. <laughs>